So a few years ago, there was a, uh, a man named uh, Rafael Antonio Lozano. You probably have no idea who that is. But he had a mission. It was kind of a strange one. Uh, he was a 33-year-old computer programmer from Plano, Texas. And he was on a quest. His mission in life was to visit every company-owned Starbucks on the planet. That was his desire. Uh, he began in 1997. Uh, at, then, at that time, there were 1,304 such stores worldwide. Now, there's, I don't know, 10,000 or something today. And it's all over the country, 40 or all over the world, 40-plus countries. Uh, and a few years ago, the late, latest statistics had him ha- visiting almost 5,000 of them. So he had gone to quite a few. He had been to uh, 213 others around the globe. And listen to him, despite this impressive pace, because that's a pretty good, you know, tack on it, he was getting realistic about the nature of his quest, and he said, you know what, as long as they keep building Starbucks, I'll never be finished. But he said, every time I reach a Starbucks, I feel like I've accomplished something, he said, when actually I've accomplished nothing. So I think he had a realistic view of what he was doing. That was his mission, to visit every Starbucks. That was his life's mission. Uh, I have another friend I know that his, by the way, there's, there's 103 craft breweries in San Diego. I know that because my friend has decided he wants to visit every one of them. That's his life's mission, to visit every craft brewery in San Diego County. I have another friend whose life's mission is to visit every uh, lighthouse on the coast of North Carolina. And there's a few of them. And he is wanted, he doesn't live there, he, he lives somewhere else, so he has to travel there. But his life's mission is to visit every lighthouse in North Carolina. So I'm asking you this morning, as we begin a new series for the final few weeks here, um, what is your mission? What is the mission that you have in your life? What is the thing that drives you to plan, to commit, to spend, to save up for? What is your mission in life. We're going to talk about that for the next three weeks. What is our mission? What are we here for? And ultimately, what is it that God wants us to do with our lives? Let's pray together as we start. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that although heaven and earth will pass away, your word will remain forever. And so we trust in it, Lord. We look into it for our guidance. We look into it for our life. We look into it for our purpose. We trust that you will change our hearts this morning as we do that. We are ready for you to speak to us, O Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles this morning, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. Uh, We're going to spend three weeks going through the Great Commission. We're going to spend some time going through these verses. Now, we're all very familiar with them. Not sure we've always delved into them this deeply, so we're going to do that. It will be up on the board here, so we're going to read them together. And this is going to be our passage for the next three weeks. So let's, let's read it. Um, Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore. That's the name of the series, Go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We know those verses very, very clearly. We've understood those verses, I think. But are we acting upon them? Those were the last words, the last commands that Jesus gave. Those are impact words, aren't they? Go, teach, baptize. Those aren't just things to think about and consider. Those are what I would call impact words. Jesus commands. Are they optional? And are we following them? So three things this morning. This morning, I kind of want to give a background to the Great Commission, kind of put us in the right frame of mind, so to speak. So we're going to do some, we're going to look at a lot of verses in Scripture. We're going to cover a lot of, of, of stories in the Bible to kind of give us a background of, of maybe we've had some unbiblical thoughts about mission. Maybe we've not really understood our role in missions, and so I want to kind of give a background to that as we move on the next few weeks. So we're going to look at three things this morning. We're going to look at God's purposes, actually. What is God thinking? What is God doing in Scripture, in, in the gospel? What is he all about? He's got a purpose in creating mankind. We're going to look at that. He's got a purpose in redeeming mankind. And finally, there's a purpose in redeeming you. Do you know what that is this morning? I hope you do by the time we leave. So let's look at this grand plan of God, right? Sometimes we get so caught up in the day-to-day Bible verses and trying to apply those to our lives. Sometimes it's good to kind of back up and say, wow, what is God doing here? Why did God create mankind We say, well, he's a creator. That's what he does, for sure. But I think the Bible gives us a twofold purpose. It's pretty evident from the beginning of history. And the first thing I want us to understand is that we were created to enjoy God's grace. You know, man is the only creature on the planet in creation that has the capacity to love and to worship God. We alone have that capacity. We alone have the ability to enjoy God in an intimate relationship. No other animal can do that. You know, the first word the Bible uses to describe that relationship is is blessing and fruitfulness. And God blesses the human race, not because of any merit that's inherent in us, right? We know that. But simply out of pure and adulterated grace, that's just who God is. He created us, he created mankind to enjoy him and enjoy his grace. And the second thing of why did God create mankind is that we were created for him to show his glory, to extend his glory, to proclaim his glory in all of the world. Because immediately after blessing Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1, he says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Remember, man is made in in God's image. And God gave people his image for a reason so that they might multiply his image throughout the world. God wants his image spread throughout the world. So he created human beings not only to enjoy grace in relationship with him, but to extend his glory throughout the world. So there, there you have it. Why did God create mankind? Enjoy his grace and extend his glory. You know, the, the Westminster Catechism, some of you are familiar with, with that um, statement of faith. And it says the purpose of mankind is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It says the same thing. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Isn't that good? That's our purpose. That's why God created us. And if we were to go back and, and look in, in the Bible and start looking at the stories moving from, from Genesis and, and all the way through the New Testament, we see that repeated. 
God has always wanted people to enjoy him, but to spread his glory. You know, you get, I love that story in Genesis 11. You know, we, we kind of missed the point of the story of, of the Tower of Babel, where God dispersed everybody, right? Um, because he had given them a command after the ark, uh, or excuse me, the, um, um, yeah, Noah had landed in the ark. He'd kind of recommitted folks to spread my glory, go out into the world, be fruitful and multiply. And they start doing that, and they get to the plain of Shinar. And the Bible says what? They stopped, and they burned their bricks thoroughly. Translation, they were done. They said, this is a good place. Let's live here. Start building a big tower so no matter how far we go, we can always find our way back home. And God said, you know what? That's not really what I want you to do. So you need to just be dispersed and let me help you out with that. You can't even talk to each other anymore in different languages and cultures. And There you go. Dispersed. Keep spreading my glory. And then in the very next chapter, we see God proclaiming a nation. He's telling Abraham in Genesis 12, I will make a great nation out of you, Abe. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And God says he's going to extend that to all the peoples on the earth and be blessed through Abraham. And God tells Abraham to enjoy his grace as Abraham extends God's glory. And then you see in the Exodus, after the children of Israel had come back into uh, Egypt to, to uh, uh, live with Joseph in a time of need, and, and they grew in, in number there, and the Egyptians got scared of them, and they started to enslave them, and people, God's people cried out for for a savior, for someone to come, for God to come and rescue them. And in the Exodus, we see that as God brings the ten plagues and Moses and he takes the people out of Egypt. And as he takes them out, the Egyptians are hot on their heels, right? Y'all have seen the movie? And God leads them up to the shore of the Red Sea. And get this now, there's nowhere else to go. So God leads them to a place where there apparently is nowhere to go. You ever have that happen in your life? God leads you to a place where you're like, what am I here for? And then listen to God as, as the, he describes his motive here. He says, because we know what he does, right? He parts the Red Sea, but, but he says this. I will gain glory for, this is Exodus chapter 14. I will gain glory for myself. Remember what's God all about? His glory. I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. God parts the waters, and he lets his people through the dry land, and then he causes the waves to swallow up the Egyptians, and he says, I gain glory from that. And he did all that for that primary purpose. And not only did the Egyptians, but all the nations after them knew that he was the Lord who saves his people, and God blessed his people in a miraculous way so they could enjoy his favor and his grace, and he made his glory known among all the nations. That's what God is about. In fact, when you, when you see after their 40 years of wandering, they're getting ready to go back into the land finally to claim the land that God had promised them. And we see in Joshua, he sends in these spies to go spy out what's going on. And, and Rahab, who's uh, in, the, in the land of, uh, in there in the city of Jericho, sends the, sees these spies and, and she's talking with them. And 40 years now after the incident of the Red Sea, people are still talking about what the Lord did for his people. Listen to what she says as she's talking to these spies who were coming in to spy out the land. She says, I know that the Lord has given you this land and the terror of you people has fallen on us and we have melted away before you for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water in the Red Sea and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who stood in your path. When we heard you were coming... 
our hearts melted, and there was no courage remaining in any of us. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And God said, I gained glory from that. And then there's the Old Testament story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember those three guys, right? Got thrown into the fiery furnace. Why would a God of love let three Hebrew boys get thrown into a fiery furnace? Why would he do that? Is this, is this how God treats people who risk everything for him? How does it make you feel the next time you're faced with taking a stand for God, knowing that God might just let you burn in the fiery furnace? We read the story and we're, we're fascinated by that story because we kind of know what happened, that God preserved them to the fire, but sometimes we don't read far enough to hear the point. And in Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar, King Neb says this, He said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's giving glory. This is a pagan king giving glory to God who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, who violated the king's command and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. And then he says this, pagan king. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn from limb to limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap heap, inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Isn't that amazing? The pagan king gives glory. The most, most powerful nation on the earth at that time gives glory to God. And the reason why God let these guys be thrown into the furnace was so that they would come out on the other side without a drop of sweat on their brows and this pagan king would declare that the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is worthy of praise in all nations and all tongues. That's what God is doing. And you see that truth again over and over in the Old Testament. You know, the Psalms speak of God guiding his people for his namesake and blessing his people so that his ways will be known among all the nations. And you get to the prophets. Prophets describe the mercy of God for his people so that they would witness to the nations that he is the Lord. Listen to Ezekiel 36. It contains some of the most startling words from the mouth of God as he recounts what he's doing among his people. God is addressing uh, how the people of Israel had sinned against him. And he describes the reason for what he's going to do among them. Remember, this is going to be the captivity and what's going to happen to them in Babylon. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. So when God acts and he does things, even when he rescues his people, when he takes his people into captivity, when he displays his people as holy, he's doing it so that the world will say there is no other God under heaven or earth but you. We see that purpose being carried over from the Old Testament into the New, right? We just read this statement that Jesus makes, this command that he gives. 
commanding his followers to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And then we have the epistles and the letters of the New Testament. It's filled with the same emphasis, right? Paul and Peter and James and John leading the church through persecution and suffering. So they spread the glory of God throughout all the world. And then finally, it's no surprise to get to the last book of the Bible and see the final culmination of God's purpose, right? Because you know, between Genesis and Revelation, God is doing something. And we see it finally coming to culmination in the book of Revelation, the end of the world. Revelation chapter 7, John writes, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and standing before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. So in the beginning, God's purpose was to bless his people so that all peoples would glorify him. And now at the end, we see in Revelation, that purpose is fulfilled, isn't it? We see in Revelation, individuals from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every language bowing down before the throne of God and singing praises to him who is blessing them with salvation. God has been about this since day one. Now, a lot of you know who David Platt is. He wrote a book a few years back called Radical. If you haven't read that book, you should. Here's what he says. This kind of sums it all up. Why did God even just create mankind? Why did he do it? God blesses his people with extravagant grace so that they might extend his extravagant glory to all peoples on the earth. That's what he says, and I agree with him. God blesses his people with extravagant grace so that there's a purpose in God's grace. It's not so that we can just say, thank you, Lord, for the blessings, but that we might extend his extravagant glory throughout all the earth. Do you get that this morning? Because sometimes I forget that, and I receive the blessings and the grace, and I'm like, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord, and I forget. God's got a purpose in giving me blessings and grace. And I take advantage of his grace, and we all do that. And so we need to come back to ground zero. Why does God extend grace to us so that we can extend his glory throughout all the world? We need to understand Jesus' great commission in the light of that, I think. It's God's purpose in creating mankind. Now, what about God's purpose in redeeming mankind? Let's talk about that for a little bit. Because God's about, about, about the redeeming business, right? He does that. Only God can redeem. And here's the thing, if I was to take a poll, not necessarily in this church, but if you go out to any church today, the average Christian sitting in a worship service on a Sunday morning like this one, and you ask them to summarize the message of Christianity, they'd probably freeze in their tracks, right? All right, how do I answer that? But when they thought about it for a little bit, you'd probably hear something like this. The message of Christianity is, God loves me. You probably hear that a lot. Or, you know, they might be a little more mature Christian. They might say, the message of Christianity is that God loves me enough to send his son Jesus to die for me on a cross. Now, that sounds pretty good. Sounds pretty biblical. But is it? According to what we've just read throughout the entire scripture, is that the purpose of the gospel? Is that what we've seen in the Bible here this morning? So I want you to stay with me now. So 
God loves me is not, I want to make sure I say this the right way, God loves me is not the essence of Christianity. It's a byproduct of it for sure because God is love. It's not the essence of biblical Christianity. How can I say that? Because if God loves me, and that's what it's all about, then the message is all about who? Me. Now, we've just read in Scripture, that's not true. Because if the message is all about me, then what is the object of Christianity, right? If God loves me, me, then Christianity's object is me. And therefore, when I look for a church, I look for music that best suits me. I look for programs that best suit me and my family. And I make plans for my life and my career. It's always about what works best for me and my family. And when I consider the house I live in, the car I drive, and the clothes I wear, and the way I live, I will choose according to what is best for me. And this is the version of Christianity that largely prevails in our culture. And I'm guilty of believing that sometimes too. But I'm telling you this morning, I don't believe this is biblical Christianity. I know a very gifted music minister, not here, but back in one of my old churches, back back in North Carolina. And before every choir practice and every prayer time on every Sunday morning, whenever the choir is about ready to lead the congregation in worship, he has this saying, and he reminds them to throw the focus. He writes it up on the board every Sunday. Throw the focus. What does he mean by that? I think what he means by that is that if the focus is on us and what we're doing up here in worship, leading worship, then it becomes kind of a demonstration or a performance, and we need to throw the focus onto who we are worshiping, not how we are worshiping. Don't make the worship about us, you know, from a choir or a worship team perspective. Don't make it about me. Throw the focus onto God and worship him. And our worship team does that. We pray for that every Sunday morning that we do that. And we need, in in other words, we need in our own understanding of Christianity, we need to be able to throw the focus when it comes to how we worship and how we live out our lives as Christians. Take the focus off of us and throw it onto God and his glory among all the nations. So let's try this on for biblical Christianity. Let's talk about this for just a moment. Not God loves me, period. That's a byproduct of it, for sure. We are blessed to be saved and salvation is a blessing from God. But the overall purpose of of Christianity is, is God loves me so that... I might make him and his ways and his salvation and his glory and his greatness known among all the nations. That sounds better, doesn't it? Because now who's the object of our faith when we say it that way? Let me read it again. God loves me so that I might make him and his ways and his salvation and his glory and his greatness known among the nations. Now what's the object of Christianity? It's God glory and his greatness we are not the end of the gospel god is the end of the gospel remember the words in ezekiel when he was about ready to take his people out of captivity and show them show the world his holiness he's redeeming his people once again ezekiel said he saves us not for our sake but for the sake of his holy name And we have received salvation so that his name will be proclaimed in all the nations. And God loves us for his sake in the world. Is that shocking to you this morning to think that way? 
You might be asking yourself, does God have some kind of ulterior motive in blessing us? Are we not the end of his grace? The answer is very clear in Scripture. We are not at the center of the universe. God is at the center of the universe. And everything he does is ultimately revolving around him. And I've heard people say, well, if this is true, then maybe God he sounds like he's kind of selfish. It's all about him. Because when we want to make it all about us, we decide it's selfish to be that way, doesn't, don't we? If we're making the whole world about us, and every time you talk to someone, and they're always talking about, about them. It's that old Toby Keith song, let's talk about me once in a while, right? Yeah. When you meet someone, and it's always about them, and they always talk about them, what's going on in their life. It seems like the whole world revolves around me. What do we call that person? Selfish egotistical. And yet God says, it is all about me. Let's talk about me and let's keep talking about me. Don't want to talk about you. Does that make God selfish? Does that make God egotistical? How can God's purpose be to exalt himself? It's a good question, isn't it? We need to have an answer to that. Because the answer is this, who else would God exalt? (laughs) If God was going to exalt something or someone else, he would no longer be the great God worthy of all glory in the universe, which he is. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying God does not love us deeply. He does love us deeply. He loves us to where he sent his son to come and save us. But ultimately, it's not about us. It's so that when he saves us and puts us on mission, that we have a passion for him And that passion is his passion on his greatness and his goodness. So here's a foundational truth that we're kind of setting forward as we we move through these verses the next few weeks. God creates and God blesses and God redeems and God saves each of us for what I would say a, a radically global purpose. To make his glory known among all the nations. But if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we're going to make exceptions to that. And we'll be tempted to adopt spiritual smoke screens and embrace comforts that excuse us from the global purpose of Christ. And we become guilty of not making his glory known among all the nations. So God's purpose in, in creating mankind. And we talked about God's purpose in redeeming mankind. So let's get personal now. Let's talk about God's purpose in redeeming you. Let's talk about you and me and what God is doing in us. So take another look at Matthew 28. So we know that these verses apply to us. We know that he said, all authority has been given to me. You can trust me to make this happen. In other words, all authority to glorify God is given to me. Jesus will build his church. Jesus will make sure God is glorified. Jesus is going to do it. Have faith in that. Therefore, since we know Jesus is going to do it, we can go. And here's what he says, go and make disciples of all the nations. And we need to talk about that word, the nations, for just a moment. We need to define the nations. Because even a casual reading of this verse would say that the mission, all emphasis in this passage is is centered and comes from Christ alone. It's not optional. We have to do it. It's a command for all of us to make his glory known. I think we get that. I hope we get that. 
Because we're talking about all peoples, all races, all classes, all spiritually gifted people in the church are called to be on mission. And I think sometimes we think other nations or, or, or going to the nations is talking about someone else. I think we're guilty of that. And yet, there's nowhere in here where it says there's someone else who goes to the nations. We all are called to go to the nations. Do you see that this morning? We're not splitting out certain people to go to certain nations. God says you all are supposed to go to the nations. So practically, we need to talk about that. Because it's interesting that we tend to make missions a very compartmentalized program in church today. Howard's over in India right now. He's on mission. He's a missionary. So we make missions a program, not a lifestyle, not part of who we are, not part of our identity. And so sometimes we think those people are the ones really carrying out the Great Commission for the church. We'll anoint them and appoint them, and they will go to the nations, and we'll support them, and we'll give them money, and we'll feel good about that. So they're the ones who are kind of really carrying out that to the nations thing. Now, I don't think we can look at the Bible and say this is a certain group of people we're talking about. I think it applies to everybody. And can we really say this morning that missions is a calling for all of us? Can we say that? Can we honestly say missions is a calling for all of us? Because you know what? We don't, we don't read Jesus' words and kind of split hairs and kind of assign it to different people with other verses and other passages. Right? We, we look at Matthew 28, and a lot of times we say, well, that nations thing, that's really... You know, somebody else, that's our missionaries in the International Mission Board or North American Mission Board or YWAM or whatever. We'll support that because it's good, but that's other people. But we look at passages in other, like Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus says, Come to me. We sang this song earlier, right? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And we go like, that means me, right? I got that one. I'm weary and I'm burdened. And Jesus, thank you. We say, that means all of us. And then we take Jesus' promise in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that the Spirit will lead us to the ends of the earth. And we say, well, that means some other people, not me. Right? So we split out what we want to believe and what we don't want to believe. And we look at Jesus' promise in John 10, 10, that we have life and have it abundantly. And we go, that's me again. And so when we do this, sometimes we draw lines of distinction that really aren't there and we sign obligations of Christianity to a few while keeping the privileges of Christianity for all of us. And we shouldn't be doing that. And we all know that we have different skills and different gifts and different passions and different callings from God. We need to recognize all of that. And God has gifted you and me in different ways, right? We know that. I'm sure it was true of the the 12 original disciples as well. God had gifted them all a little bit differently. But here's the thing. All of our gifts are supposed to be pointed to the global purpose of taking God's glory into the world. I'm going to turn again to David Platt. He gave me kind of inspiration for this message from his book. And he says this, Every saved person this side of heaven owes the gospel to every lost person this side of hell. Here's what he says, We owe Christ to the world. Those are powerful words. We owe Christ to the world. Who is to say what the nations that Jesus is talking about means? 
Does it mean you have to travel a certain distance before you're at one of the nations? Does it mean we have to go overseas to fulfill the Great Commission? Does it mean we have to go to Tijuana to fulfill the Great Commission? And some people say, well, God has given me a heart for a Coronado. Can that be true? Is that part of the nations? Now, if we say that, here's the thing. If we say, well, God has given me a heart for Coronado. Okay, well, is that a smokescreen for not just doing nothing? Or are you really out there trying to reach Coronado? It's what God's put on my heart, and I'm really going to go out and try and reach Coronado in a different way than traditional church, for sure. You know, there's this illustration. There's a story of a, a young man who applied uh, for a job as an usher at a theater in, in some mall somewhere. And, that, of course, the manager asked him the all-important question to an usher, which is, what would you do in case of a fire breaking out? Right? Because somebody might yell fire in a crowded, crowded movie theater, right? That old thing. So what would you do? That was his, his interview question. And sometimes we respond like he responds. And, and he's, you know, when we say, what would you do if Jesus came back tomorrow? Right? We get, we get the same, same answer. And so this guy asked was asked, what would you do in case of a fire breaking out? And he says, don't worry about me. I'd get out, okay? Don't worry about me. I'd I get out. If I see the fire coming, I'd get out. That wasn't the answer the guy was looking for. And sometimes we respond that way too when we, we were asked, what would you do if Jesus came back tomorrow? We'd go, well, I'd be okay, wouldn't I? Right? If Jesus came back right now, we'd say, well, I'm Okay. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. That's good news. Don't worry about me. I'd be okay. But see, you're, you're an usher. You're actually called an ambassador for Christ. And it isn't just enough to get out of the fire yourself. You are responsible, and I am responsible for helping others get out. And here's the awful truth. And each and every one of us must examine our own lives to see if this is true. It's hard for me to even say this. There are so many Christians who are just not really concerned about the needs of people right around us. How many of you know your neighbors or don't know your neighbors or don't know your neighbors well enough to know if they even have an Understanding who Jesus is. You know, the other awful truth is that most Christians rarely, rarely share the gospel. It's a fact. You know, most Christians don't schedule their week according to, you know, how I can feed the hungry or help the sick or strengthen the church or go out and talk to people or even talk to my neighbor. Most Christian schedules are not filled up with that kind of activity during the week much less you know, going outside the country to do it. And so God has a heart not just for Coronado, not just for the United States. He's got a heart for the whole world. So we want to make an application here this morning. What I'm going to ask is, is just several things to think about as we kind of get wound up for this the next couple of weeks. I want you to do three things. It kind of has to do with the the vision of this church, and I pray that it carries on. I think it will. I've seen some things that are really encouraging to me that the vision of this church is going to carry on after I'm gone. Number one, pray for a revival. We say that a lot, but can we really do it? 
we've got some, some prayers that have been disseminated. Uh, I think they're online. They've been thrown out on Facebook. There's copies of them somewhere. There's a prayer for this church that we're, we're as a congregation, praying for. And one of the things that we need to be praying for is a revival. I saw something yesterday morning at a men's breakfast that I have not seen since I've been here, and that was 22 men that came together for breakfast. And if you weren't here, you need to be here. And these men are committed to have a revival starting in their own lives and in their own homes. And that's where it starts. And that's amazing. So part of our, our, my take-home exam for you, if you will, as we start to understand missions and how, our, how we play out in it, is, is let's start praying for a revival in our own hearts. Pray for a revival in my heart. I'll pray for a revival in your heart. And God will give us the opportunities to do number two, witness. And I think we need to learn how to witness. It's shameful how many people don't know how to witness don't know how to talk about Jesus, don't even know how to describe their own salvation experience with a way that is something more than just, I used to be like this and now I'm like that, because if that's all you've got to say, that doesn't convince anybody of anything. Do you know how to witness this morning? Boy, if you don't, get in a discipleship group. Go to, get with some people who do and find out how to talk about Jesus without just throwing out a track and saying, here's the Romans road, you got to believe this. Know how to talk to people about what Jesus has done for you and who he is. And so when we do that, we can start evangelizing the community. We can start evangelizing at any event. If you understand someone's story and where their story needs Jesus and how you can explain how in your story maybe something similar happened. So part of our, our vision in this church is to reach up, right? Reach up, reach out, reach the world. So what does reach up mean? It means get closer to God, right? Reach up to God. Get, a clo- get equipped for service. There's a term that I love to use. It's called gospel fluency, right? If we were to go to a, a, you know, south of the border, we would love to take someone, if we weren't, fluent in Spanish, right? You go to any foreign country, you want someone who speaks the language, So if we're going to go out on mission, we need to be with people who speak the language of the gospel. And we need to learn the language of the gospel so that we can speak it to someone when we hear they need to understand it. Everyday living. There was a time and a place for handing out tracts on the street. There was a time and a place for that. I just don't think in Coronado that's going to work anymore. We need to understand how to speak gospel into people's lives when we see it and we know that they need it. I think we also, to reach up, um, to get equipped for service, we need to embrace this idea that God is sovereign in the testimonies and the witnessing of his people to unbelievers, and he alone is responsible for bringing those believers to faith, unbelievers to faith. We need to rest in that. Don't make it all about how well my presentation is, because sometimes we get caught up in, well, I don't have the, I can't piece of gospel like, like Nate can or Fitz can or the pastor can, and so I'm just not going to try. No, wrong idea. You can mess it up. You can mess up your own testimony, and God can still bring someone to faith through that. What's that old saying? He can make a crooked stick straight. You can hit a home run with a crooked stick or something like that. All right. You know, God can do that. Have faith and trust that he can, but you've got to be out there doing it. Just being obedient to the command of Jesus Christ to go into the world and make disciples. 
And finally, here's the, the third one. And we're seeing this happen. I saw this happen yesterday, the men's breakfast. I see it more and more. So let's pray. Let's pray for revival in our own hearts, in our, uh, other people's hearts. Let's really learn how to witness. And if you don't know how to, if you're not gospel fluent, get that way. And you get that way by hanging out with people who are. And finally, because we're in a, in a church setting, and again, a church is not a time or a place or an event, but we have a gathering. This is a, a, you know, every Sunday morning. Invite somebody to this gathering. Just invite them. And keep inviting them. Invite them to the Bible study. Invite them to the men's breakfast. I saw a lot of people came because they were invited. You know the number, in fact, the percentage right here, 82%. The number of unchurched people who are receptive to attending a church if invited and escorted by a friend. If you leave something on their door, maybe you get 20%. Maybe this number is probably inflated. Right, leave a little door knocker on the door. Hey, we're having service Sunday. Got a great worship and we're having donuts and yeah, come on by. Maybe you'll get two people out of ten who respond to that. But if you invite someone and then say, "Come with me," eighty-two percent, the number of unchurched people who are receptive to attending, if invited and escorted. Number one reason why people come to church: they were invited. Are you inviting anybody? Pray for revival. Be gospel fluent and invite people. It's that simple. Let's just start with that. Let's start right there. That's a, that's a big job. That's a big take-home exam. Let's start with that because that's what I'm going to be doing is, is that, but, but not in a gathering out, out there. Come to my house. So that's what I'm going to be doing. That's my, my calling, I think, is to build missional communities where we're doing things in homes with people who wouldn't necessarily want to come to church, but... You invite them, and if they don't come, maybe I'll invite them to the house. Together, we're going to reach these people in Coronado. It's a a both and, right? It's a win-win. So let me close this morning by just asking this question. What is your mission? Is it visiting every Starbucks? Is it going to all the breweries? Is it looking at all the lighthouses? Or is your mission, what Jesus called us into, is bringing lost people into the kingdom. What is your mission? Let's pray together. Father, your words that you, you gave to us when Jesus was here are so clear. And sometimes we, we twist them because they make us uncomfortable. I'm guilty of that. For years I have avoided what I believe you've called me to, maybe out of fear, or maybe out of feeling insecure. And, and Lord, I pray that all of us would overcome that fear and insecurity by just trusting in you more, learning to love you more, learning your, who you are more, praying for, for you to make some impact in the nations, which means right here. And the nations can be my neighbor, the nations can be my lost family member, the nations can be in this town, it can be in Tijuana, it can be in India, the nations are everywhere, Lord, and help us to have a heart for the lost. Help us to just fulfill what you've asked us to do, commanded us to do. We trust you for the outcome of that. We pray the next few weeks that our hearts are really turned to exalt your name, and that we know that we've been blessed beyond measure. Your grace is 
abundant and amazing and extravagant that you've poured out on us, the riches that says of your grace, so that we might extend your glory and extend your image into all the nations. Help us to do that. 